Welcome back, creeps. Hey, y'all. How's everybody doing this Monday? Happy Monday. Hey, y'all. This will be the first episode that we've actually recorded, I think, intentionally to come out on a Monday. Was it? I think so. I don't know. I can't remember. Either way, happy Monday, everybody. A few things off the bat. My mom, Karen, her name is actually Karen, is... Uh, Doing a charity skydive, she's going to jump from 13,000 feet, which I think she's only doing that because when me and dad did it a few years ago, we only did 10,000. Uh. So she has to go one better. <laughs> but no, she is doing it for charity. Uh, let me see. I'm trying to find the message. She's doing it in aid of youth suicide prevention in Ireland. Um. There's two different ways to donate. One way is to text to donate. So I don't know if that applies for if you're not in Ireland. But anyway, it's YSPI SFL 8444. Text that to 50300. And then that will donate four, four euro. So around $5. And she's already above her target. But anyway, there's other links and stuff like that too for you to donate and i'll put all that in the show notes later on when i'm doing this so yeah if you can please donate that'd be really nice and um i think you can leave like a little message as well so that would be really cool yeah what else do we have to talk about they'll say makeup channel they'll say is editing like a mofo <laughs> we have doubled our productivity yeah we finally coughed up and got a new laptop so that's they'll say is editing laptop right now <laughs> And soon it'll be my streaming laptop. Yes, very soon we'll be streaming Nintendo Switch from from right here in Casa del Creep. <laughs> um, I'm excited for us because we're making, we're, we're being productive in what we set out to do this year already. Yeah, and uh, in other news, I will no longer be working two jobs as of next week or something like that. So I'm hoping that'll give us time, give me time. To focus more on you guys and like weekly creep stuff. We can set up the Patreon again. Hopefully, yeah, that's what we're aiming for is to just start making more content, better content, whatever. And uh, hopefully catch up with ourselves and maybe even get ahead of ourselves. That would be really nice. So, Dulce, give me a tarot card. Okay. Today's tarot card is the Five of Pentacles. Today, let your fears and insecurities be a catalyst for change. If you've been feeling incompetent in your work, think about what skills or new work habits will help you feel more confident. If you've been ill, take a look at your lifestyle and make some practical plans for healthy changes. Though it may not feel good, your fear is a valuable tool showing where you need to make changes. There you go. Wow. Wow. <laughs> all right, radio man. Yeah. <laughs> wow. All right. Welcome back to 93.5 The Bird. <laughs> the so I'm bird. so sorry, people. Like, I think I'm overcompensating because I feel like people are going to not like this episode as much as they've enjoyed the rest of the Enfield episodes. Okay. Well, because I'm bringing the truth to the masses. Oh, that's why. Oh, because of. Okay. No, nah, well, it's, it's actually, it's not that serious. Well, to be honest, like this, this, uh, I don't even know. Can you call it a narrative? Because it's not like I make we're making it up. You know, no, no, it's, no. I've, I've, it's just it's kind of biased because of the source material. But let me just get started, right? Because we started this series with a warning from the author of our main source, Guy Lyon Playfair, in which he assured the reader of his book, "This house is haunted." He assured us. That it would not be a fun read. And mm. I feel like we have to respect his words and make sure that the theme of this week's episode is disappointment. Okay. <laughs> so the first thing I want to mention, and a lot of these things I'm not going to go into huge detail with either. But the first thing I want to mention is that, yes, the girls were caught messing and playing tricks on Guy and Morris. Mm. They admitted to it. They also were like... One particular newspaper came around with the editor's assistant, mm -hmm. who, according to Guy, looked like a fucking bodyguard. Mm -hmm. 
he basically forced um, Margaret to like tell him the whole thing was a lie. <laughs> she she was like afterwards, she was in tears and she said to the guy, she was like, I wasn't even listening to what he was saying. He just kept talking to, at me like. But with that being said, the girls did actually admit like as children and later as adults that they did fuck around with the stuff because they were kids. Janet was caught purposefully trying to recreate and reproduce poltergeist type phenomena, which again, they later they later admitted to. And Guy and Morris were pretty certain that they had caught them every time because they were so bad at trying to fake the shit. Like, they would see it in their faces, like, and they just couldn't hide what they were doing. I have a question. Yeah. So, did they admit to all of it or no, 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 some no. of it? So, Janet, as I think in, like, in a much later interview said, maybe 2% of the stuff. And Guy was like, even that seems like a very high estimate like you know what i mean right because for the amount of times that they caught them they were so bad at doing what they were doing yeah. that it was so obvious that guy and morris were like well we're pretty sure we would have <laughs> right because i i figured it'd be really hard to replicate a lot of this stuff like where you're literally defying physics and things well, are being pl- like moving in different you know what i mean this is it and this is like, like a the, huge the striped pillow thing yeah and like this is like a huge argument in the whole case because obviously as soon as people say oh but well, she faked this one thing so the whole thing is a you it's know a blanket statement yeah if, if you say stuff like so, that so a lot of it was um you know all these new people come to the house and like the kids may be feeling like they had to make it do stuff and when it wasn't doing stuff they would have to you know, put on a show basically for yeah. these new people. But either way, the the new people who came to the house genu- generally didn't get that experience. As like Mrs. Hodgson said later on, it's like you can't experience the house by just spending five minutes here. Like you have to experience the house as yeah. you would be living in it. Mm-hmm. Which Morris and Guy and uh, David Robertson, they stayed like multiple nights in the house and stuff. Yeah. Anyway, I'm not going down that whole debunking rabbit hole. I'm a firm believer that this case is a real one. But that doesn't mean that everything that happened was necessarily caused by ghostly, spiritual or otherworldly beings or whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. Also, you will be expecting some big names to pop up here and there. And although they will, it will not be in the capacity that you expect. I'm not saying that I have this story 100% correct, but... To the best of my ability, I have included as much factual information as the source material has allowed me to personally understand. And I feel like if you're if you are somewhat well versed in this uh, in this community and this topic together, then you probably can already guess what we're what we're aiming at. Yeah. And how vague we are. Yeah, I know. I'm <laughs> just like, we're being. I'm trying to cover my ass in as much of a fucking broad statement as possible. Like, listen, this may or may not rock your world depending on how deep in this shit yeah, you are. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> But like, if you only know this story purely based on the, like the like Warner Brothers shit. depiction, yeah, like, this is not, this is not the book for you, <laughs> you know? But that being said, the updated source material list for this week, just this week, is an article by Greg Newkirk off his website, Week and Weird. Greg Newkirk of Hellier fame. The Big Seance podcast. Um, I need to look up the host's name, but he just interviews people in the paranormal world. He actually interviewed Jim Harold as one of the oh, episodes. Yeah. But he there, he did an interview with Guy Lyon Playfair before he died oh, in, wow. um, I believe, 2018. Thank you, Caitlin, for doing that research for us. The official Ed and Lorraine Warren YouTube. It's an interesting watch. That guy, Tony Sparrow, is definitely trying to make money off their backs. The Telegraph newspaper, BBC Scotland, Channel 4, Poltergeist by Colin Wilson, and Warner Brothers. War- Warner Bros? Like, Warner Brothers. Yeah, sounds like Warner <laughs> Marlborough. Now, they, they, um, they released a series of interviews when they released The Conjuring, like, to build up the hype and stuff like that. And then, obviously, this house. 
It's, it's haunted. haunted by Guy Lion Playfair, <laughs> which is arguably my favorite paranormal case study book that I've read to date. And I can vouch for that because sometimes he walks in while I'm on my phone and he'll be like, this is the best. This is the best ghost story <laughs> book I've ever, I've ever read. And I'm like, right on. <laughs> yeah. Like, do you know how much research that they had to do? And nerd they did, they did, yeah i know i'm just over here fangirling over how nerdy these like these are the real deal anyway we finished up last week with some pretty gross developments in the story which i'm fairly sure was skipped over by most tv and movie script writers the appearance of words written on the bathroom wall in what appeared to be human feces it was, I was not. About to say shit. Yeah, <laughs> that seemed redundant, though. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for clarifying. Shit. Yeah, it was the word "shit" written in shit on the bathroom wall. This would not be the only time that human feces would make an appearance, and like I've been saying, this case never seemed to stop with the new developments and different, like random twists and turns. But also, these random pools of water were still appearing. At random. I've written the word random about 800 times here. Randomly. <laughs> Randomly, yeah. <laughs> and John Burkham managed not only to get a sample of some particularly foul-smelling liquid that just showed up, I believe, in the kitchen, Whoa. but he also managed to convince a friend at the hospital where he worked to test it for him. Because oh, remember, he was a night porter. Yeah. Um, or just a porter who worked different hours. Anyway, his friend took it and tested it and then he came back he's like are you having me on this is cat piss what yeah um, uh, to the best of my knowledge they didn't have a cat they didn't have a cat <laughs> um a new welfare psychiatrist who according to guy was much more open and understanding than the last one remember the last one like literally sat in meetings at the school board and stuff and just didn't open his mouth he was like no i have to be here like that kind of attitude this guy treated the family with respect and he actually advised that both Guy and Morris just needed to get away from the family. Like, just leave them alone. All the activity will stop if you two just stop encouraging it. Mm. As this man was a medical professional and Guy and Morris were trying to find the solution, they stayed away from the family for almost all of April 1978. They took his advice and they left. But then they got a call from John Burkham saying, can you please come back as the activity had not stopped. Peggy had been keeping record of as much as she could while everything was happening. And in her notebook for that, not even a month that the guys were gone, she had recorded like 155 incidents of significance. Wow. Yeah. And it started to take like an even darker kind of turn right like she got a knock at the on the front door one evening as she was making dinner in the kitchen she heard a knock at the front door so she left what she was doing walked through the house and answered the door with all of the kids you know being nosy trying to see who it is and whatever she attended to who it was at the front door but when she got back into the kitchen there was a bunch of tissue stuffed between the pot and the gas flame right mm -hmm. but it hadn't lit like, it was just sitting perfectly in that little nook. Yeah. But the house could have burnt down. Like Right. And it happened a separate time while Morris was actually present. And he found, again, that even though the tissues were placed pretty much in the flame, they didn't actually burn. They just got scorched around the edges. It's fucking tissue paper, like, in a right. gas flame. Like, that does. that's not natural. <laughs> no, it'll fucking go off like real straight fast away and yeah, it's yeah tissue so this wasn't the only time where there was incidents of fire either like most of the occurrences in the house this one seemed to be suggested and it was actually graham morris that did it this time he like kind of put his foot in his mouth this is where the names get kind of confusing because it's graham morris morris gross and then there was another person with a surname of morris who was no relation <laughs> okay but anyway graham morris the photographer from uh, the Daily Mirror, he was telling Morris about another nearby investigation in, I think, Holloway or something was the name of it. He was just telling him briefly, but in this case, there was no teenagers. As far as I'm aware, it was a young-ish married couple. And other than that, the two cases were quite similar in terms of the activity that was going on. But the new case had fire. So many fire 
that the local fire department had been called to the flat on multiple occasions and went on record saying there's no explanation at all no indication of how they started like the fire inspector which i guess he's the person who gets called in when there's like suspected arson or, or whatever okay he said that there was at least seven different occasions where he had shown up like this is his only job yeah like is to find the source of the fire and he couldn't do it these fires were much like those that we spoke of and remember in the old timey stories and other poltergeist cases but like most recently was the old timey stories where the bed just seemed to randomly burst into flames and then they saw this like column of flames just go back into the bed and then that was it like minimal damage Mm -hmm. or the only like it was damage in a specific area and morris described them more like radiation burns whatever that is like almost as if a fucking like old school laser beam shot through something like but when graham was telling morris about the new case he was doing it in the presence of the hodgson's And he just happened to say, oh, and they've got fires too. But he didn't go into great detail. Um, Although Guy was like, very politely said, you know, I really wish he hadn't said that in front of them because now they knew that's what the next step in this thing is. Mm -hmm. But a week after Graham was there telling them, the Hodgson's had their very first fire incident. Morris was again in the Hodgson house and he said he smelled something burning for like 10 minutes. But he just assumed it was an outside smell. And when Margaret went into the kitchen to make tea, she immediately called out that something was on fire. So naturally, they all ran to the kitchen and there was smoke billowing from a closed drawer. So they opened the drawer and they found a box of matches completely charred all over. Right. Obviously, kids fucking around with the matches. Yeah. Not one match inside the box had been lit. That's what's weird to me because like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, it, it's the match tips are sulfur. Yeah. Like how? Like it's the oldest trick in the book. Like we used to do it all the time as kids. You would buy matches for like 20 cents or something just to light all of the tips at once and watch them go. To <laughs> but the box would always be fine because it was such a an intense burst of flame. Yeah. That nothing else actually lit. Whereas this was the exact opposite. Like all of these matches were protected in the cardboard. So, crazy shit. Anyway, there was also a lot more apparitions than I had assumed. Like, I really felt like I had known this story just from seeing bits of documentaries and reading about it here and there. But the general story that seems to keep being portrayed is that, you know, Bill Wilkins was the only one doing everything and that he had, like, possessed Janet. But it seems like there were a lot more transient energies or whatever you decide to call them. And remember Bill Wil the Bill Wilkins like part of the story is unbelievably fucking on the nose. Like I think, I think it was Margaret, not Janet, but she said like she described him as, yeah, I was in the chair downstairs in the house and I went blind and I hadn't had, and I had a, as they say in their Cockney accent, I had an (laughs) emridge and then he died. Yeah. And, that this all turned out to be true but they only found out like years later yeah and he said yeah and i'm buried in i think it was durant's park cemetery and he was like you can look up pictures of the hodgson's girls standing at his grave yeah like which is just nuts all of this stuff was spot on but he wasn't like the main character by any means like and one day just for example i have like a list of just a handful of the apparitions here But one day Janet was in bed when all of a sudden a man just walked through her bedroom wearing brown trousers, an old raggedy shirt and a pair of braces. She said he had long fingernails and that he was trying to scare her. And according to Peggy, he had succeeded Mm. for it was one of the few incidents that made that brought Janet to tears. And remember, like she was just a goofy little kid. Yeah. And that she would just laugh about almost everything. Like she'd be getting thrown out of her bed and like giggling and like, oh, this is great. So when she came down upset, Peggy was on guard straight away. She knew that like, no, this is this is serious. Yeah. And That's what it's like with my niece. Like she doesn't easily cry. Yeah. So when she does. The oldest like, oh. one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And as well, the detail in these apparitions 
like everybody is it like the long fingernails the raggedy old shirt like they're really painting a picture here and Peggy herself was using the loo one day just before they all went out to go shopping and I think as far as I can gather from the story all the kids are either in the living room or waiting at the front door and she was like I'm just gonna pop to the loo while she was in the loo she heard someone banging their feet outside the door said thump thump that was it so she opened the door to see who was there no one there and when she was in the kitchen she heard someone walk into the bathroom behind her again no one there as she turned again to leave she saw a little boy that for a split second she thought was young billy only this little boy was wearing what looked like a nightgown and he also appeared to be floating across the fucking kitchen. <laughs> so definitely not Billy. Definitely not Billy. Billy could not float to our best um, knowledge. And then John Burkham, Peggy's brother, said that he saw what appeared to be Janet looking out of an upstairs window, only to discover that Janet was actually downstairs. He also saw the apparition of a man, quote, sitting on a chair at the table with his back towards him. He had one arm on the table, just sitting there. He had a white, blue-striped shirt on, no collar, like what was worn in the 30s. Sleeves rolled up, black trousers, leather belt, grey hair, not too thick, sort of semi-sparse. Like the detail that this man saw, he stood in shock and saw this man. He said he was as real as anybody. And Guy Morris seemed to love when John had an experience because he like you they'll say me had a genuine gift for a description without embellishment (laughs) he just observed and recollected to the best of his ability and he froze when he saw this man blinked after a couple seconds and he was gone but interestingly enough the house was completely empty when he had this experience and i mentioned the house being empty because it was just another thing that could not be blamed on janet or any of the hodgson's you know because that's the general theory is like, oh, it was Janet. She was there. So this is what happened. Yeah. Or, oh, well, it was the Hudson altogether. So, of course, it happened or whatever. Right. But that being said, it did seem like the effects of the activity were rubbing off on those nearest the case. And this is a theory that I kind of tend to agree with in the sense that I do think the more you're around paranormal activity, the more you experience it, whether on your own or just in general or whatever and this is just what i believe based on my own experiences like but morris himself had some pretty major annoyances in his house one was could have just been a coincidence but he went to start his car one day his jaguar which was like his pride and joy Mm -hmm. and actually in the guy playfair um interview that i read he was like yes i have many fond memories of doing over 140 miles an hour (laughs) driving down the the fucking main road i was like that sounds so cool but he went and started it one day and he was just waiting for it to warm up when all of a sudden it just redlined and started revving the crap out of it so remember morris is a an inventor mm-hmm. he knows how to he knows engines and shit okay he took a look at it couldn't find anything wrong but was like well maybe it's the carburetor so he sent it off and got a new carburetor and even the people in the place are like, I don't fucking know, but here, try this. It happened again with the new one. He didn't tell anybody, but when Margaret was using the voice one day, mm-hmm. she was able to pick up on it. She told him in not so many, it, it, she, I can't exactly remember what the fucking term was. I should have written it down. But she knew that that had happened to him this morning, that morning before he left mm-hmm. to come to their house. Strange things like that. But the most annoying thing, in my opinion was that he was going through his wife's jewellery one evening in order to get the insurance policies up to date. And he found that everything was where it should be and everything like kind of checked out with their list or whatever they were doing. But the following day, a very expensive ring which had been left to his wife by her late mother was nowhere to be found. And they tore the place apart trying to find it. His wife said like she was so so protective over all of her jewelry like when she came home she would take them off she had an ashtray that she would keep them all in while she was doing the dishes or anything like she wouldn't get them wet Mm -hmm. and then every night then she would take them back upstairs from the ashtray Mm -hmm. like that was her routine and morris had been through the list the night before and knew where everything was yeah 
So they tore the place apart. Couldn't find it anywhere. And like looking in stupid places for it where they knew it couldn't have been. And they waited like, I think, three weeks before finally saying, look, we, we can't find it. It's time to claim off the insurance and like, we'll buy you a new one or whatever. But even that like guy Playfair said that the ring was really undervalued on the insurance. So it was like an extra kick in the teeth. Yeah. And the day that Morris actually wrote the claim to the insurance company, his wife opened the drawer where she normally kept the ring. And there it was mm. just sitting there looking yeah. at her. Vic Nottingham had a similar experience. He left his keys in the ignition of his van one day while working on a job because apparently that's something that he used to be able to do. And he was a roofer, so he'd be up on the roof coming back and forth. And I guess he left it there for the guys to get materials out or whatever. But when it's time to pack up and go home, the keys were gone. He searched all over, knowing for a fact that he had left them in the ignition. But eventually he just gave up and... Being an older vehicle, he was able to start it with the screwdriver. Who who knew? So he used this screwdriver for the next three days because he couldn't find this specific type of key in whatever stores that he was going to to get the key. So I guess he had to order it or something. The day he got the new key, he got into the van with the new key and there was the old one sitting at the pedals at his feet. Just like, there you go. Fuck you. And he knew, again, like him and his colleagues had gone through this van yeah. to find it. His son, Vic's son, Gary, with two R's, he poured himself a glass of lemonade one day. I went out to sit in the back garden and enjoy his delicious beverage. He put the glass down, got himself situated, and when he turned back around, barely a second later, the glass was empty. Oh, not wow. even gone like take the fucking glass don't do yeah, this yeah. To me, you know I mean? or tipped over it was yeah, just empty just empty no more lemonade no lemonade for you and that was the last of it <laughs> yeah probably yeah gary's girlfriend had gone upstairs to get a record as well in the nottingham's house one day remember the nottingham's are next door but joined to the hodgson's house yeah anyway the record that she was getting was at the very bottom of the pile so she's bent over trying to pull it out and someone starts touching her bum. Oh. So she thinks, oh, Gary being cheeky. <laughs> Turns around. Not Gary. Nobody. <laughs> There's nobody there. And she lost it. I think this might have been like her only experience. Yeah. Well, but in this house. Experience. Yeah. No. So she like ran down the stairs screaming and crying. And like that was it. She left. And then the next day back in her own house, which I don't know how close this was. Her mom gets a, or they get a knock on the door and they go to answer it and there was nobody there. Yeah. But again, it was just one of those, like, is this just a rub off experience? Like, it's an awful coincidence that it was the very next day that yeah. this one and only time it happened. And then also, this is still a next door incident. But Peggy next door's dad, Mr. Richardson, was washing the dishes one day while Vic was sitting at the table witnessing this and a colander. And a baking tin were just lifted out of the sink. I'm assuming they were still wet. He said they came up about six inches and they just threw on the ground. <laughs> and he was just like, oh, piss off. <laughs> <laughs> but again, Vic witnessed it too. And another, what we'll call them like auxiliary incident. Something not quite attached, like not that didn't happen directly to the Hodgson's or in the Hodgson household was Brenda Burkham. Regular Peggy's niece, John Burkham's daughter. She bought herself a pork pie for lunch one day. Gross. Yeah, it sounds awful. I'm picturing like raw pork <laughs> for some reason. And she went back to her house where she left it on the table while she know, like went to wash her hands or do something. And when she came back to the table, like shortly afterwards, the pie was just gone. Wow. This poor girl, she must have been starving. She even walked back to the shop. <laughs> I was like, did I leave my pork pie here? And no, she didn't. She didn't. She never found the pork pie. The pork pie was gone. But when Margaret got home from school later that day in their house, in the Hodgson house, she found the message, I've got your pork pie, scrawled across the mirror in the bathroom. What the fuck? Yeah. And she didn't know what the fuck this was. Like in reference to she was like, I didn't. Yeah, I didn't have a pork pie. I didn't order one. So she was like, all right. I think they were generally calling it Fred at that point. So yeah. she just wiped it off and she's like, all right, Fred, whatever. 
only when she, she probably re- just wrote K. <laughs> <laughs> K dot 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 question mark. <laughs> but she rubbed it out, went off do to do whatever, and then when she came back into the uh, bathroom later on, the exact same message was written across the mirror. Now it didn't say whether it, what it was written in, but it just said once more. I've got your pork pie. <laughs> like, what the fuck? Respond and, to the man. Yeah, Just yeah. write K and move on. You're like, bitch, wrong house. Like, <laughs> But as well as things happening to other people while the Hodgsons weren't around, things were also happening to the Hodgsons while they weren't in the house. Yeah. So the strange phenomena also followed the girls. And like... Anytime they went to the, the grocery store or the little shop on the corner or whatever, like fruit and vegetables would just fall off the displays um, to the point where like the local shopkeepers knew them and were like, oh, for <laughs> fuck's sake. But Guy and Morris didn't um, like pursue these events because they were afraid of like the repercussions that the locals might have. So they only had the girl's word for them pretty much. Other than just like small things like the fruit and vegetables falling off, they were at the opticians one day and like a box full of lenses just started to shake. And then the door to the office that are the opticians room. I don't what do you call it? It's not a surgery. It's a I don't know. I guess that place with the big eye machine. OK, the door just like opened and closed itself and random shit like that. And even one day as they walked through the park, a brick just landed directly in front of them, like a full size fucking How brick strange. just hit the ground. And they thought like. You know, who the fuck threw this? Right. Nobody. Nobody around them. And then this next one really, like, blew my fucking mind because I've never heard. Well, I suppose I have. But, like, anyway, this is, like, a whole community event. Okay. So I'm reading directly from the book right here. The Hodgson's, the Hodg, the Hodgson children had been having a bit of an argument with the kids from number 86 over the garden wall. When suddenly a shower of stones thudded into the Hodgson's garden. Before anybody could accuse the boys from 86 of throwing them, another lot came over from the opposite direction. Then to add to the confusion, the man from number 90 came over to complain angrily that somebody was throwing stones at him. After that, an astonishing blitz of stones, milk bottles, bricks and clumps of turf broke out. Objects flying in all directions and landing in at least five different gardens. Soon there was total bedlam in Wood Lane, as neighbours rushed in and out of each other's houses trying to find out what was going on. And whatever it was, it was not the Hodgson children playing tricks, for it went on even after Mrs. Hodgson had rounded them all up inside the house. Morris Gross went to great lengths to try and sort out what had happened, taking several statements on the day and on the spot. One of the children from number 86 told him that stones had come over the roof of her house from the street while all the Hodgsons were in her full view. It wasn't them, she stated firmly. Not one number of any of the five families Gross interviewed could actually say that they had seen anybody throwing anything. And the clearest description of all came from Peggy Nottingham's brother, Jack Richardson, who was having a meal in her kitchen where he told Gross what he had seen. I was right here, where I am now, eating my dinner, and there's a window facing me, and there was this almighty smash, and the speed of this thing came through here. A clod of dirt had crashed into the back door, knocking it open. Oh, wow. And then I looked, and I saw it going away. He pointed towards the bottom of the Nottingham's garden. Away from this house directly, Jack Richardson replied firmly. It was travelling so fast... And then it just dropped. It was a round lump and we found the remains of it. It made me shudder. That's the first time I've ever seen anything happen here. He was clearly impressed by the event. But, like, how? (laughs) Like, you literally cannot blame the kids for it or anybody. Right. And how is something going to come through your fucking back door, turn around and go back out and then just drop as if someone was running with it rather than throwing it? You know what I mean? Yeah, it defies physics. Insane. On the 16th of June, 1978, Janet went back to stay with the nuns that her and Margaret had stayed with previously in a care home type thing. I don't really know what the actual name for it is. I guess like a respite house. Okay. And typically it was for like troubled children who are like 
children whose parents couldn't deal with them anymore and needed respite. But Janet actually requested it. The story kind of gets kind of sad here, I feel like. Janet was truly exhausted and felt that the family unit together was creating all of this. And she believed that if she just removed herself from the equation, it would be better for everyone. Which that, that is sad. So sad. Like, she's still only a 12-year-old girl. Yeah. But they did decide that it would be best. And in the meantime, Guy was trying to get her into Maudsley Hospital, or the Maudsley Hospital, which apparently was one of the top of the range psychiatric hospitals at the time. And they kind of knew somebody in there who had wanted to get her in previously, but the old psychiatrist wasn't having any of it. Like the old local psychiatrist. But now with this new guy, he genuinely wanted to help. So anyway, she finally got into the hospital around five or six weeks later. And while she was there, she would undergo a myriad of different tests, examinations, everything. While her overall mental and physical state appeared to improve drastically. So it was good for her. You know what I mean? She got what she wanted. She also told Guy that very few things actually happened since she had left the house. And she would actually help kids debunk things. Mm-hmm. Right now, these kids didn't know who she was or what like was going on back in her personal life or whatever. But someone got scared one day because the table started shaking. And like the all the plates on the table were like shaking all over the place. But Janet was the one who got down on her hands and knees and was like, no, look, it's a wobbly leg. Like this needs to be fixed. So she seemed to have picked this up from Guy and Morris. Like, you yeah. know, she was still very rational, mm-hmm. especially for a child. And she came to the conclusion on her own that the energy needed the family to build upon. And now that she had had time to sit and think about it, she was very philosophical about the whole thing you know what i mean she was very level-headed uh-huh. in her approach she was like no she i don't even know if she called them ghosts or spirits or whatever but she was like could understand that there was a collection of things needed to happen in order for the activity to take place yeah that being said the activity didn't stop back at the house okay like the couple of things that had happened to janet the nuns were like it's just your imagination. <laughs> so yeah. she was like, all right, fine. And she would say things like in, when she was in the hospital and Guy Playfair and another lady, um, can't remember the other lady's name. Either way, they were like talking to her as adults. And she was like, they all think it's in my little mind, but it's not. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It was like, anyway, the activity in the house. Little Billy, who had stayed almost purposefully unfazed by all that was going on, seemed now to be picking up where Janet had left off. So one night in August 1978, while Janet was still in hospital and Margaret was off staying in her friend's house, Billy started to moan in his sleep in almost exactly the same way as his sisters had previously. And when he woke up, he told Peggy that he was frightened, but soon drifted off back to sleep. And again, this fitful moaning. And when he woke up the next time, he told his mom that he was afraid to close his eyes because of the dreams that he was having. But for Peggy, she recognized straight away, like it was so eerily similar to what Janet and Margaret had been through. Like she was terrified. She took him and they went up and stayed in John Burkham's house that night. Yeah. I think it was the first time that she was actually alone with Billy Mm -hmm. over this whole extravaganza. But then another day, as John Burkham was in the kitchen asking Peggy how she was doing during a particularly quiet stretch of days, which, again, like other stories, the quiet days leaves the family almost more on edge because they're like, when is it going to happen? Right. Or what's going to happen next? But as he's asking Peggy this, the voice said clearly, why don't you just fuck off? And see, the voice happens when Janet's not there. Billy was the only other person present. Yeah. And they turned around and they thought it was him. They said, Billy, what did you just say? And he was just sitting there playing with his Legos. He was like, what? <laughs> like, what, what are you talking about? He's <laughs> playing Legos. It's interesting because it, it kind of seems like he didn't even hear it. This is it. Now, mm-hmm. again, it's one of those things we can't prove or disprove. But interesting that it only happened to come out of him when there was nobody else around. Yeah. Anyway... Janet got the all clear from the Maudsley Hospital in September 1978, a year. I think it, this started on the 31st of August 1977. 
So a year after all this had started, and she was only home half an hour when she saw an apparition of a little boy who looked like Billy in the kitchen. And we can only assume that it was the same apparition that Peggy had seen earlier on. It just didn't stop. It wouldn't stop. It had definitely died down, but it did not stop. And interestingly enough, this is kind of an aside to everything. It doesn't have really so much to do with the story. But at some point earlier in the investigation, Margaret told Guy that some friends and her had played with a Ouija board in a shed around four years previously. So she would have only been, I think she would have been around 11 or 12 at that time. And she admitted like, they didn't really know what they were doing. They had seen it in a book, probably fun and games for fucking children. Yeah. <laughs> but they were using a glass on the board. And she said, quote, when we done it, the jar tipped and we saw this man's face at the window. Obviously, they all freaked out and fucking legged it. But she was positive that she had seen the exact same apparition in the house. Like, while all of this stuff right. was going on four years later. And she said... No, 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 I'll never forget his eyes, like that kind of detail or whatever it was about his eyes. She knew this guy. And then another creepy apparition was a little boy who just jumped out of the fireplace one night. God. Can you imagine? No. I'm I'm thinking, remember the little boy from, I think it was Insidious? Mm -hmm. He was like in black and white, like kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Terrifying. Terror, absolutely. Fucking awful. Little shorts and all. Get the fuck out of here. But interestingly enough again this is just one of those like strange coincidences that didn't really fit in anywhere vic nottingham's grandparents had had a little boy who died by falling into the fireplace now i don't know if it was in this house but vic nottingham seemed to have this strange connection with all of the apparitions like the man that john burkham had seen just sitting there he was like that sounds exactly like my grandfather mm-hmm. and then when they were told about the little boy jumping out of the fireplace. He was like, my grandfather's son died falling into a fireplace. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Or by the injuries that he had succumbed to. So little coincidences, but it lends to the theory that there was no one single controlling entity. Now, if anyone remembers the Monk of Pontefract story that we covered once upon a time, I, I can't remember what episode it was. One of the main sources that I read for that was Poltergeist by the author Colin Wilson. And there was a really good analogy for where Poltergeist activity might come from, which was specific to the case, but I thought and still think it was the perfect example of what it could be. It really resonated with me. So I was scouring through the book last night, literally sitting here at two o'clock this morning going, I know it's here somewhere. I eventually found it and I felt like such a dick. Colin Wilson actually got the analogy from another author who he had met one evening after an SPR meeting. Any guesses? Is it Guy? Fucking Guy Playfair. Oh my god. <laughs> like, are you serious? I compl- like, completely like So Guy's forgot. your man. A guy and me obviously have this fucking connection now. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're both just boring enough. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> But anyway, so in this other book, I'm glad now that we have, like, we're starting to accumulate these, like, piles of, like, reference material, though. Yeah. Anyway, Guy told Colin Wilson, who told me to tell Guy that, quote, a poltergeist is basically a mischievous, disembodied spirit. It's kind of a football, a football of energy. It somehow gets exuded from disturbed teenagers at puberty, and along come two or three spirits or elementals look through the window and see this football lying on the ground. And they do what any group of schoolboys would do. They go and they kick it around, smashing windows and generally creating havoc. Then, often as not, they get tired and leave it. And for me, it's such a simple, yeah, analogy. Yeah. But it plays true to so many of these stories that we see because time and time again, they'll, you know, they'll be having like spiritual warfare, quote unquote, and like, all this will go on for three months, six months, a year and a half, whatever. And then just fizzle out. And it's like the family kind of just forget it even ever happened. Like, yeah, it's like, oh, yeah, you remember that fucking weird. You know what I think is really cool is as we've been doing this podcast. I feel like my uh, my views on the paranormal are just changing. Science. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. 
Um, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, who well, knows? But it's a good thing. I think so. Yeah, because I definitely, from the the stuff that I have been reading, and it's probably not good for the listener because it is more for me science based now, or yeah. like at least appears to be. And again, Morris and I think it was Morris in this book, this house is haunted. He said the ancient Greeks discovered electricity. Now it took almost 2000 years or something for somebody to know what to do with that. Yeah. But and how to explain the ancient it. Greeks also had their own poltergeist activity. Yeah. And cases dating yeah. back then. You know what I mean? So uh-huh. it's like, are we just on the cusp or will it be another 2000 years? And then someone will go, Oh, you fucking idiot. Look, it's no, this. I think, I think there, we might end up being in a place where, and see, and I've always believed that bit about like the whole, there are things that we are probably going to eventually be able to explain. Yeah. But not everything. I thought like the way, like, and it really speaks to how the things that I was like, basically my cultural background, I thought that was separate to demons. You know what I mean? That's what I mean. So whereas something could be explained away by demon, you know, like, yeah, you know what I mean? Like, uh, are demons real? Are demons like, you know, a, a biblical term or are demons just energies or entities that we just call them that because we define evil Yeah, because uh, we're humans, right? But these could just be entities where their nature is just this. Yeah, you know what I mean? It's not exactly it's not exactly evil or bad, you know, because like whenever we see National Geographic and we see a lion eating a gazelle, it depends on what kind of, you know, you could be rooting for the lion. <laughs> what's or, your perspective? Like? Or, or yeah, what's your perspective like? Because you could be demonizing the lion when the lion's nature is to kill a, a gazelle because it's hungry. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? I get what you mean. But yeah, and I, I feel the same way, like especially now, like after all of this stuff that we've been reading and i'm not i'm still not out here trying to like debunk everything either like i love a good ghost story yeah but i love this aspect of a good ghost story it's like yeah Yeah. we still don't know what it was but anyway working with this theory the schoolboys kicking the football the group of schoolboys had the perfect scenario because according to janet the whole thing only started when a palpable sadness descended over the family when the dad left them she said that's when everything changed. Peggy was a very strong woman and a no bullshit, gets the job done. Guy and Morris both say like she kept such a clean house, like with all the four kids on her own. The house was always spotless. She always cooked for the kids, all that kind of thing. She was a woman of what's it like res- resounding character. Mm-hmm. Is that what you would say? But she was clearly affected by what had happened with her husband. You know what I mean? Naturally. Yeah, as anyone would be. And Janet did mark, even as an 11 or 12 year old girl, that her mom changed then. And obviously the rest of the kids did too, because the dad wasn't around anymore. And obviously it's that's a sad aspect of this whole fucking story. But Guy and Morris worked closely with the family and eventually the activity did just kind of fizzle out. Much like a deflated football. So the Warrens, right? (laughs) (laughs) I grew up thinking Ed and Lorraine Warren were the absolute be-all and end-all of supernatural superheroes who swooped in to save the souls of anyone who ever thought of smelling the box a Ouija board came in. And I'm not saying that they didn't do that. And I will definitely use their books in the future for different stories. Just like I did with the Bill Ramsey story. And the other one that The Conjuring 3 was based off of. I can't. I can't fucking think of the guy's name now, but we covered it like way early on. Mm-hmm. But like the Bill Ramsey situation, his problems seemed to stop because of what Ed and Lorraine Warren did. Okay, now again, this week I'm biased because the only main information I have is Guy Playfair's version of events. In the Bill Ramsey case, I only had the Ed and Lorraine Warren's version of events. So who knows? Like, I can't say. I'm not saying they're wrong or they're not. But. I've watched the videos that Warner Brothers uh, released when they brought out when they brought the Hodgson sisters onto the set of The Conjuring 2 to meet Lorraine uh, because Ed died like years ago, but Lorraine only died, I think, four years ago. 
And they were genuinely overjoyed to see her. Like the two, Janet and Margaret, were so happy to be back with Lorraine. And they thanked her profusely for all the help that her and Ed had given the family. And I watched Janet say that when the Warrens showed up at their house in late 1978 or early 1979, that she felt like it was the first time that they really felt like someone cared about them. But, I mean, Guy and Morris were there for almost fucking two years. Yeah. Almost every day. Like, you know, they cared. So I don't know. I don't know. I've scoured the first two, maybe even third page of Google. I've watched the whole movie of a presentation that Ed Warren gave to himself in his house. I've watched a video of a dude who said he was there with Ed when they went to the Enfield house. These are all very easy to find. So if you want to watch them, go check them out. What I could not find, however, was anything that the Warrens actually did to help the Hodgsons. Lorraine Warren said that she never took payment for any of her work. And I don't doubt that, but they did make a living from selling the stories and books. And naturally, they would do this for any of the big cases that they did. But again, I just couldn't find their account of anything that they did at the Hodgson household. Although I did stumble across an author named Rodney Cannon with a book called Paranormal Investigators, Ed and Lorraine Warren, the Enfield Poltergeist, which is one of many of his books that he has released on uh, Nook Book. Okay. They're like 99 cents. Um, His other releases are stuff like Bitcoin and cryptocurrency how-tos, microwave cookbooks, one of which is called Cooking with Mike. Nice. And A Guide to Dinosaurs, their past and future. Mm. I mean, they I, still have a future in chickens. I mean, maybe, but either way, I don't have a Nook account, so I couldn't read the book. Oh. But and then according to um, the Big Seance podcast, that dude managed to find one chapter in one book written about it. But he said out of, I think, 17 or 19 pages that was devoted to the Enfield haunting, like nine of them were talking about something else. Okay. So very little seems to be out there. I'm not saying it's not. If you find it, let me know and I'll do a follow up on this. And Guy Playfair did say that he was at the house when the Warrens showed up uninvited and quite late to the case like it was at the end when things were fizzling out and one of the first things ed said to him was something along the lines of i can make you a lot of money on this case and with that guy said all right i'm gonna take off you guys do your thing all right i'm out no literally he was like i'm gonna go home for the day i'm not sitting here listening to this shit because that's not what they were interested in right him a guy wanted the science Right. And that's pretty much all Guy had to say about it because he's a very polite. He's a classy broad. He's a classy broad. Yeah, absolutely. But he has said it many times yeah. <laughs> in many different interviews over the years. He was like, this guy showed up talking money. I left. I don't know what he did. But from his understanding, the Hodgson's were kind of like, well, he showed up and he was here. Just like any number of the other people who showed up at random to like help out or just see what was going on for themselves. They were like, that's another person. It's fine. It's whatever. But like I said, the Hodgson sisters seemed genuinely grateful. So how long were they there for? 30 hours. Okay. Is the most that I can find. That's according to the dude who was there. Yeah. Now, they might have gone back another day. I'm honestly not sure. I cannot find the information. But there is one picture of Ed and Lorraine Warren with the girls when I think they were a year older. So definitely 1979, which was when, according to Guy and Morris, it had kind of stopped altogether. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know. But I know for a fact that they were in London on different business. They were actually at the Boiley Rectory where they got information to write their book on the Boiley Rectory and just showed up here. And there is tapes, apparently, like, all 30 hours of tapes were recorded audio, but they're in the Warren Museum or files or whatever. So, and they did apparently make connection with Fred, too. I wonder if after the activity fizzled out, did the girls have 
um, did they maintain their relationship with Guy or did Guy just sort of ghost them? <laughs> you know what I mean? That's another thing I don't know. Yeah, I, I was trying to find that out because even like later on, Guy actually sued somebody. The only money Guy made from this was obviously this book, which he said was far from a bestseller. Yeah. And um, when I believe BBC, no, no, no. Yeah, BBC did like a mockumentary, which was actually based on the Enfield haunting but they never asked for permission for his book so he was like well fuck this like um because they directly used his book to make a joke of it yeah so he got like a decent settlement out of that and then later on uh i think they somebody did a three-part series or four-part series and he sold the rights but when he sold the rights he thought that they were gonna stick to the book and he only found out later through his agent that no 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 this just means that they can use your title and so like guy's not in the conjuring too as a character <laughs> like mm-hmm. you know what i mean whereas morris is and stuff like that and then other people made out that guy was only sent there to keep an eye on morris and stuff like this and mm-hmm. he was like no like me and morris we're buds we're like yeah you know yeah. what i mean um but anyway that's all like mad speculation and so no there is nothing to indicate that they maintained a relationship after the activity fizzled out not that I can see. Okay. But and then I'm also sure that like the girls and the whole family probably missed them a lot. Like you know what I mean? I wonder if that explains why the connection with Ed and Lorraine. Right, because I wonder if she came in and they were like, "Oh, well, he ghosted us, and he probably only cared about the activity, whereas you came back." Yeah, to, honestly, to visit us. You know what I mean? I yeah. wonder, and and I'm just speculating, obviously, because I, I wouldn't know what it's like to grow up with no father. You know, yeah. I had mine. Yeah. And then for them to come in. And that was a huge thing as well. That like a lot of people were like, oh, these girls clearly see Guy and Morris as father figures. But again, like in The Conjuring 2, when it was Ed Warren was their father figure, like that handsome bastard. What's his name? Patrick Wilson. Mm-hmm. He steps in. He's like playing the guitar for them and all that kind of shit. Well, in the movie, but, like when they left. I, I, the, the, I think it might have been that. No, it was the Enfield TV series. Yeah, see that I haven't seen. So the TV series, guy, I think it might have been Guy or Morris. I don't know who portrayed him or yeah. who who was being portrayed. But during that time, where they told him, "Hey, you should step away because I think you're too close." Yeah. Um, and they made reference to the guy. Um trying to sort of see janet as a replacement for his daughter who had died or maybe not replaced but seeing a connection okay during that time she was like sort of freak like shit was going down in his absence and she was just like i need him to come back yeah and that you know what i mean that was so that speaks to that so if that's true if they really did see them as father figures and they were ghosted yet again by another father figure you know what I mean? Yeah, but they, like, during interviews and stuff like that, when the girls were questioned, and even, like, under hypnosis, the one time that Janet was hypnotized, um, it was pretty clear that they just saw them as part of the furniture rather than part of the family. Yeah. Now, I don't know if, at what point that relationship might have switched over. Who fucking knows? You know? Like, yeah. I'm, we're, I'm not qualified to say. Yeah. But it is an interesting fact. And I had left out the whole part of Morris's daughter, who was also named Janet, by the way. Yeah, I remember. And she only passed away shortly before this all started. Yeah. And like, again, I've left so much out of this book, but there was, I think, five different mediums that came to this house that guy wrote about. And one of them did pick up on Morris's daughter, Janet. Only one. Each medium picked up on something else. Everything was true, but everything was different that they picked up on, which, again, was interesting to this case. It was like at this moment in time, while you're here, that is correct. But like if a different medium came in next week, the whole fucking vibe might have shifted. Yeah. So anyway, this one guy from Holland did pick up on uh, Morris's Janet and was able to, you know, tell him like, yeah, this is her. This is what she's doing. But then he didn't say that she was responsible or anything. It was just like, well, I mean, you're there, so... She's here. So she's here, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That could have been it. There was no defining thing. And I don't 
from what I've read, I don't think that Morris saw this family as a substitute or anything for his own. Okay. Like, um, because they were all like a good bit younger. Like his kids were grown. Like his jam okay. was 24 when she died. Mm. Or 22 when she died. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the last thing I will say is, again... I will mention before we wrap this up is that the, a psychiatrist who was in attendance at a big SPR meeting where Guy and Morris gave a full presentation of all of their research um, suggested that Guy look into Gilles de la Tourette syndrome. The presentation was an absolute flop, by the way, because it turns out whether you're a skeptic or a believer, nobody ever believes the evidence that's not your own, right? So all this stuff that the guys were talking about, everybody just shit all over it. They're like, it was the kids. It was Peggy. And they're like, but they, they weren't there, <laughs> you know. So eventually they just said, all right, fuck it. Like they stood on stage for two hours just being harassed by their own like members of the society. Anyway, Guy explained to Morris months after this what he had found out about Gilles de la Tourette. A French doctor in the 19th century who first identified the syndrome characterized by coprolalia, copropraxia, and echolalia. What's all that in English? Morris asked. Sudden involuntary tics and movements, including obscene gestures, explosive utterances, such as barking, grunting. And does that sound familiar? Yeah, I'm waiting for you to finish. Yeah, no, I know. <laughs> this is re- I'm reading directly from the book. <laughs> Plus, both behavioral and verbal imitative phenomena. The verbal symptom that appears in about 50% of cases is the explosive utterances of obscenities, most often shit or fuck. You're joking, Morris exclaimed. No, I'm quoting the American Journal of Psychiatry, September 1974, page 1000. And there's more. This disease is very rare, more common in boys than in girls, usually beginning before the age of 10, cause not known, but thought to be associated with traumatic events such as parental separation, starting school, or having your dog run over, (laughs) very specific. Considered by some authorities to be a schizophrenic condition, which I think has since been debunked. Oh, but here's another textbook that says that Gilles de la Tourette syndrome and schizophrenia are clearly separate entities that should be easily differentiable to the practicing physician, though not to any of the Enfield physicians, evidently. Because remember, Janet was in the Maudsley top-tier psychiatric hospital for weeks. And so anyway, they said that if they had seen her at, again, like the mediums, if they had seen her at this specific time of the case, then they probably would have said it's... Tourette's yeah or a variation or whatever but also down to the textbook obviously we know that her parents had just separated she had also just started in in a new school and then he went on to say that like and she was what 11 yeah yeah going on 12 Mm -hmm. all the while this happened she then started she got her monarchy yeah as we said like during all of this so like textbook literally everything down to a t so that's it (laughs) (laughs) i don't know is the answer at the end of all of these things i don't fucking know i'm not an expert there's some of the facts that i have found yeah do with that what you will and we'll probably never know yeah absolutely not but let me tell you about knocking (laughs) (laughs) no but that's literally one of the uh experiments was the difference in knocking between a poltergeist knock and a human knock like i geeked out you're lucky you are lucky creeps that i didn't go as deep as i wanted to in this <laughs> interesting okay yep all right all right that yeah okay and just like hauntings we're going to end this very abruptly yep that's it all right <laughs> bye <laughs> now um, let please let us know what you think um also give us the yeah, rating and reviews but yeah let us know what you think hopefully we didn't drone on too long in this episode i no. really tried to avoid that what sucks is that in cases like these well i mean in a lot of cases really because again we don't understand the nature of the beast and they could be different in different cases yeah we're just left to speculate because a lot of it we don't understand two we're not there and three it involves humans and humans can be very complex yeah and Again, like they keep saying in the book, like anytime any new scientist made a new discovery, 
like 98% of scientists are like, ah, oh, you're wrong. Yeah. Or that's bullshit. And, and then here's like, why. Yeah, yeah. And then <laughs> 50 years later, it's like the example given was, can you imagine what, uh, who was it? Was it Einstein that like he did fucking electricity and shit? No, that was Tesla. Mm-hmm. I don't know what Einstein did. Either way, can you imagine telling them in the late 19th century, there's going to be internet, right? This thing that connects us all with no way. You know what I mean? They'd yeah. be like, get the fuck out of here, you witch. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, there you go, guys. Hopefully we didn't get too sciencey. But uh, yeah, if you want to read the book, go get it. It's fucking fantastic. Fantastically boring um, in a good way. And yeah. All right, cool. That's it. All right. Uh, <laughs> tune in next week. Don't forget to watch Dulce's makeup videos. Um, I'll link them in the show notes. My mom's skydive. Please... Uh, donate to that so she doesn't fall out of the plane thinking that she didn't get enough money uh it's for a great cause suicide prevention obviously is a great cause um and yeah that is it okay bye everybody bye